Hello, welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. COVID-19 Hospice How-To Series. The government yet again updates rules for FFCRA paid leave and provider relief funding reporting. September was another busy month as hospices and other providers try to keep pace with the government's constantly evolving rules and standards around various COVID-19 federal relief programs. In this episode, Meg Pekarski, Tom O'Day, and Andrew Brenton hone in on key recent changes to the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, paid leave requirements, and provider relief fund compliance reporting requirements and discuss what these changes may mean for hospices. So welcome, Andrew, Tom, thanks for joining me today. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Yeah, th- thanks for thanks for having us. We're, we're already in the fall here. Yes, I'm wearing a sweater with uh, the fireplace going. So, <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, but I still have my window so I can hear my fountain going uh, at home. But how, how are you doing, Tom? Doing well. Fall is in swing. Kids are in school. We're happy for that and safely uh, hoping to make it through a semester at least. <laughs> my bears yeah. are doing well in, in uh, the NFL and all is good. <laughs> Yeah, all is, all is good. All is good. So, um, well, and this is the the first uh, mashup we've ever done in terms of a podcast episode where we're combining a couple different substantive areas into one podcast, which I thought uh, was a good idea for this one in particular because um, they are divergent um while they're they're divergent, I think that there's more to come on both of them. So I think today's podcast is really just accomplishing uh, here are the highlights, and then we're going to be mulling this over more. But but um, uh, Tom, because Andrew Brenton with his name probably always has to go first, I'm going to reverse this and say, Tom O'Day, you should go first. And it does not roll off the tongue for me, but FFCRA, uh, you and I recorded a podcast on this, uh, I don't know, several months ago. Um, And so maybe you can just give a brief summary of, of what the FFCRA was and what we covered in that other podcast. Sure. So the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, is a law applicable to both public employers as well as private employers with less than 500 employees. And there's all sorts of detail and nuance with respect to how you count an employee, but for the most part, it's 500 or less employees. There is an exception for really small organizations of less than 50 employees as well that um, that we won't get into the detail here. Generally, the FFCRA provided two levels of additional leave for individuals due to the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic. The first was an expansion of the Family and Medical Leave Act, where individuals who for whatever reason needed to care for loved ones or significant others because of the coronavirus pandemic um, could take that time up to 12 weeks at a reduced um, uh, amount um, of pay, but take that time for for that kind of care. 
The second level of leave was the paid sick leave that um, provided for paid leave for up to 80 hours per week for full-time employees for any one of six different reasons. Um, generally, those reasons had to do with anyone who was ordered to self-quarantine or isolate due to COVID-19, individuals who had been advised to do so by a healthcare professional or who were experiencing symptoms, but then also um, individual employees who were caring for individuals who were subject to a quarantine order or caring for a son or daughter if the place of care or the school was closed because of COVID-19. So broadly, FFCRA um, provided for paid leave at um, for employees and those covered employers due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, um, and that's really helpful, Tom, I guess, in terms of uh, what has happened since that law came out is there's been some litigation that came out of, was it New York? And and because the, the law, as I understand it, had some exclusion rights that certain employers could exclude certain employees from this expanded leave. And so and that was litigated, and now we, we ended up with these uh, new changes, uh, these amendments, which came out, I believe it was September 16th, right, Tom? Correct. Right. Okay. So the Department of Labor has been great about giving a, a lot of detail about what the FFCRA is, how it's applied to employers. They've got, um, I'd say, for a government agency, wonderfully applicable, frequently asked questions that are available on the Department of Labor website. And they, at in, in April, they issued what they're calling temporary final regulations. So these are regulations that, because of the pandemic, are in effect final. And based on those regulations, a couple different groups challenged some of the provisions in the regulations. And on August 3rd of 2020, that district court in New York invalidated four parts of the Department of Labor's rule. And the main applicable um, for this conversation rule that the department that the court invalidated had to do with an exception to the FFCRA for healthcare providers. And the um, the court. Well, step back. The Department of Labor determined that if you were, for the most part, a person working for a healthcare entity, healthcare provider being the employer, the organization, then under the FFCRA, as the Department of Labor originally interpreted it, you could be exempted from the pay provisions. So a healthcare employer could say, we, because we have a need to make sure that we're fully staffed, in preparation for any kind of surge related to COVID, or just generally because of the nature of our healthcare services that we provide, the Department of Labor said, you as a healthcare employer, a healthcare entity, can say, we're not gonna give our employees that paid leave. In practice, a lot of healthcare employers have worked with legal counsel and others to provide some level of leave and to put some rules around and guardrails around when you can take that leave, but at base, the Department of Labor would have allowed healthcare employers to say no leave. These organizations challenged that interpretation of the FFCRA, and the court said that was too broad. So, in other words, like the court essentially said that the FFCRA healthcare 
provider exemption isn't based on who the employer is. It has to be based on who the individual employees are. Are those individual employees healthcare providers under the FFCRA? And that's what the court looked at and ultimately the Department of Labor addressed in these regulations. So practically speaking, then, in how it was before, if and obviously our audience here is hospice and palliative care providers, if I was a hospice because I'm a healthcare provider, um, and I know we weren't specifically listed, but there was, you know, when you weave the definitions, I mean, we're, we do provide healthcare services, you could then choose to exempt, could it be all of your employees? Because that definition was really broad. And, and um, because they worked for us as a healthcare provider, is that right? Exactly. So it would it would have covered under the old broad definition that the Department of Labor applied, it would have covered um, the nursing care, any other direct care providers, but it also might have exempted, or as an employer, you could have decided to exempt the front staff um, in the office, or you may have exempted some of the other individuals who didn't have that direct patient or direct resident care component to the work that they were doing. Um, and that's a little that that's where the the court had a problem with how the Department of Labor had interpreted the, the law. Okay, so and, and I think, and obviously I haven't uh, talked about this with with every hospice in the country, but I I think that many didn't exempt any employees, and then those that did probably limited it to. Um, direct healthcare providers. And so it sounds like while well, this change has gone into effect, um, so if you did say, okay, my receptionist can't take this leave, you'd have to change your policy. But to the extent that you weren't excluding your your receptionist or medical record staff from taking leave, that this this these new rule changes that came out September 16th, you don't really need to change what you're doing, if I'm understanding you, Tom? Correct. Yep. I think there's both a legal approach to this, and then there's the, the, the thoughtful employee relations approach to this. And I think a lot of healthcare employers for the last four or five, six months have taken a reasonable employee relations approach to the idea that if an individual has a need for some kind of leave, even if it's covered by this FFCRA, and we could keep that employee from taking the leave, a lot of employers have made the decision to allow them to take the leave. And they mm -hmm. may craft some other rules around it, but um, I think a lot of our clients and, and um, hospices around the country are being smart about it. Because we've been reasonable and smart about it, these rules have less of an effect. Okay, that's really helpful, I guess. Other things that are notable from the September 16th um, changes that that you wanted to mention, Tom? Sure. The other the other components that the district court invalidated, it was interesting because the district court essentially told the Department of Labor, you haven't justified the different approaches that you've taken in your regulations. And although it was fairly clear that the district court didn't think the Department of Labor could or even necessarily should take these different approaches to the leave, the Department of Labor pushed back. And where the court said, you haven't justified the need for things like 
an employer approving intermittent leave under the FFCRA. So the ability for an employee to say, I need to leave work at two o'clock every day to pick up my kids from school at 3.30. And that's uh, not a full day of leave that I need under the law, but it's an intermittent. I need to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because I've worked on a carpool with Tuesdays and Thursdays. For example, that might be a request for intermittent leave. The Department of Labor stuck to their previous guidance and previous rule on that issue and a couple others. It just justified the reason why it had taken that approach. So the healthcare employer exemption is probably the most uh, significant change between the prior Department of Labor interpretation and the current with the okay. new rules. So for folks in New York, um, does are they operating under a different construct because of this opinion or was what you were talking about, they said is, well, you just didn't justify it. So they've now cured that. So the law of the land is what this rule is. And even if you are in New York, is that what I'm getting or? Correct. Even in New York now, the new Department of Labor revised regulations would apply to you. I haven't heard if they're going to be challenged again. I, I frankly wouldn't be surprised if they're challenged again. Um, and perhaps this individual district court judge in New York may, may, I guess, address these issues again. But the new revised regulations that the Department of Labor released on September 16th are now applicable across the country, effective September 16th. Okay. Well, that's really helpful. And so we wanted to, to invite you back, Tom, because I think that while some people's practices didn't, um, you know, exempt certain uh, employees from this leave, I think for the HR professionals out there, I think keeping up to speed because you know, you may as an employer make certain decisions, but you could always choose to make different decisions moving forward. So if you were going to change what you're doing, you need to be mindful that there's greater limits on who you could exempt and, and whatnot. So right. Um, so terrific. So so Andrew, uh, in addition to dealing with FFCRA, there was some interesting news that came out on the provider relief funding, which I think rock the world uh, It's probably <laughs> too dramatic, but but has got uh, a lot of providers up in arms. And uh, so I expect this is not going to be the last word that we have today on this. But but why don't you tell us what happened with this provider relief funding uh, reporting guidance that came out? Was it last weekend or? Yep. Maybe? Yep. So so why don't you give us some highlights? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, th this was the you know last weekend, uh, September nineteenth. Uh, HHS put out some new, just as you said, some new provider relief fund compliance reporting guidance. So for the first time, uh, HHS in that guidance they included specific formulas for calculating healthcare expenses and lost revenues attributable to coronavirus. Um, HHS also included the specific data elements that providers are going to need to calculate, uh, you know, to use these calculations and, um, you know, these data elements are going to need to be reported on these compliance reports. Um, we can kind of go through um, kind of so, some drill down a little bit uh, with respect to that. 
as you kind of highlighted, um, in, in some cases, the new guidance does appear to, um, you know, materially change positions previously taken by HHS, kind of change how providers were interpreting the prior guidance um, from HHS um, regarding how you may use your, your uh, provider relief fund payments. So a couple highlights here. Um, we, we found out, HHS is telling us now in this new guidance that um, in terms of kind of how you're allocating your relief fund payment, you know, drawing it down to apply it to expenses and revenues, first, you have to apply your payment to, to your healthcare related expenses. And then if you still have any leftover payment amount uh, after applying your expenses, then that's when you would apply, you know, the extent to which you have lost revenue. Which, which, as we'll get into, um, you know, there's been some significant changes in that. So I mentioned we now have specific formulas for calculating both expenses and lost revenue. Um, if if you are a provider that received more than five hundred thousand dollars in provider relief fund payments, uh, note that under HHS's new guidance, you're going to actually have to fill out more detailed expense information than you would if you received uh, less than 100, or excuse me, less than $500,000. Um, there's some specific kind of categories and subcategories of expenses that you're gonna have to go through, add up your expenses, put that in the in the relevant bucket on the form. Moving on to the- so Can I, can yes. I stop you there, Andrew? Please. So, cause there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. So, so and these are not rules, Right. This is guidance. Right. And so <laughs> we're not going to get into, you know, the what the legal meaning is. I mean, right now our, our clients have to deal with what is and the practical realities of that. But um, just just like in, in what Tom talked about, my guess is this is probably not going to be the last guidance we get. But so what I hear you say is they were. So one takeaway is the order in which you can apply your funds is you have to first do expenses yep. and then we need to do revenue. And so yes. that that's important for for our listeners to to understand. Then then let's go into what are expenses. And so in in a prior podcast too, we talked about what expenses were and not in like here are the <laughs> hundred expenses you might be able to take, but one of the the principles or guiding um, guiding thoughts was the more connected it is to providing uh, direct patient care, the more likely it would be considered uh, an expense that that could be counted. And so so where does our working principle get us in light of this new, guidance that came out are there do you feel like we need to amend what we were saying or well on the that specific one that you just mentioned the kind of the necessity um kind of standard that that we were using um that still seems to apply this you know kind of interpreting the new guidance um there is some language though that that i wonder maybe give providers a bit more flexibility um in, in terms of the nexus between you know, the expense and, and the necessity of the, the kind of direct patient or the, you know, the direct patient care aspect of the expense. So HHS in their new guidance document, they say that expenses attributable to coronavirus may be occurred 
incurred in both direct patient care overhead activities related to the treatment and of uh, confirmed or suspected cases of coronavirus, preparing for possible or actual coronavirus cases, and maintaining healthcare delivery capacity, which includes operating and maintaining facilities. So, you know, given that HHS there does appear to be kind of distinguishing direct patient care expenses from, you know, everything that isn't a direct patient care expenses, and they're saying that expenses may be incurred kind of in both categories. Um, again, that I think our original kind of guidance still makes sense, but, um, you know, we're kind of exploring whether HHS here is actually intending, you know, that maybe we don't need to directly tie the expense to, you know, this, you know, this is incurred by a, a, a clinic, you know, clinical staff member going in to treat a coronavirus patient. It, you know, it could, could maybe expand a bit beyond it, but of course still has to ultimately be attributable to coronavirus as kind of a, original term and condition of the use. And one of the areas in particular that has come up in, in our conversations with with clients and I think is is more directly addressed in this guidance is about infrastructure and expenses related to telehealth and and uh you know, internet capacity, and so what do they say about costs related to building that telehealth infrastructure? Well, those, yeah, those uh, examples that you just gave are explicitly referenced in the guidance document as being, you know, permissible expenses. So to your point, um, they explicitly talk about expenses related to um, EHR licensing fees, telehealth infrastructure. So again, if, if you, um, you know, expended some money to kind of expand your telehealth or virtual care capabilities during the pandemic, HHS here seems to be saying that those could be included uh, as a qualifying expense under the Provider Relief Fund. Uh, they also mentioned increased bandwidth teleworking to support remote workforce. So again, things that you all probably are doing to kind of preserve your ability to care for patients we are now getting some some explicit reference to those in the HH guidance, uh, and for a lot of these, this is the first time that we're seeing HHS explicitly come out and say, "Hey, we consider these to be related to, or excuse me, healthcare-related expenses attributable to the coronavirus." So, and, and I think that's helpful because hospices, um, because they are allowed to do. Uh, visits if needed virtually, uh, but then also with the face-to-face can be done, um, you know, virtually as well. And so I think that to the extent people had to buy hardware, software, or like you said, licensing fees and and all of that, that was that was expenses that obviously weren't budgeted. Um, for most folks, uh, because there wasn't really the same kind of need for it as as there is now. Anything else before we move to lost revenue, where there is sort of a lot of fireworks? Yeah, I I don't think so. I, I think we kind of hit you know very high level kind of the new expense information, but definitely do want to kind of get into the weeds here just a little bit on, on the the lost revenue front, which to kind of preview matters really isn't so much of a lost revenue calculation anymore. It's now a net operating income formula. So again, mm. providers providers have, you know, ever since April when the when the guidance you know on this program started coming out, everyone's interpreting lost revenue to mean, 
what you would think it means. It's revenues that you've lost because of coronavirus. Now we have a specific calculation for that. You know, this is what HHS means by that. And we find out really not lost revenue at all. It, it is truly a, they even call it a net operating income formula. So first you take patient care revenue, which we'll talk about in a second. And then you, you add that all up and then you net out your expenses related to, or your, your healthcare related expenses so that you're ultimately ending up not with kind of revenue, but with, you know, operating income. This is how much I gained or lost um, in, in 2020. And there's, there's a kind of a cap now on the amount that you can claim, which I'll get into in a second. So, so, so yeah. Andrew, that's really helpful, but just so I understand. So, you have your patient revenue and then you take minus your expenses. And so do you include the money that you got? Like let's say those healthcare related expenses you just got done talking about, you would have to subtract like any money you got for for to cover those expenses before you could. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you you basically you add up all your healthcare related expenses. You have a number for that. Then when you move on to the quote unquote lost revenue side of the equation, you add up your patient care sources and then you net out essentially the same expenses, the same categories are given in the guidance to come up with now a net operating income. Um, and then if you know you you can claim as much money from the provider relief fund as is within within this new cap that, that I wanna talk about um, in, a, in a moment here. But yeah, that's exactly right, Meg. Okay, so so we subtract those two different numbers. So we have our total patient revenue, and is that from all payer sources? Yeah, so it essentially is. So there are uh, six categories that HHS is giving us for what patient care revenue means. And again, th these are what you would add up before netting out expenses. So we explicitly have um, Medicare, uh, part A, Part B, Part C. We have Medicaid, commercial insurance, self-pay, and then a, kind of a, a catch-all other category, which is described as the actual gross revenues, net charges from other sources received for patient care services and not already included in what we just talked about. So yes, essentially all payer sources, okay. um, um, including self-pay, and then to the extent there's, you know, so, like a, a, a revenue that you haven't already kind of fit into one of those categories that you can still argue was received for patient care services, then you could kind of lump that into that total calculation as well. Okay, so I here's all of my, my money that I got in the door. And then I have to say, okay, minus my expenses, which includes like sort of this money. And so the, the expenses that you're talking about, obviously there's more expenses than just the things that are defined as healthcare related expenses for purposes of CARES Act, right? I have staff costs, I have all these other things. So are you minusing all of those expenses uh, from that net revenue? So it would be inclusive of, of, of that. Yes, okay. that, that is how I'm reading it. Um, you know, HHS is explicitly talking about, you know, mortgage payments, 
um, you know, uh, costs for employee health insurance, malpractice insurance. I mean, the expenses okay. that you're netting out and that you would have already added for the prior calculation, the expenses calculation, um, you know, those include kind of things that we had thought would be included, um, you know, staff costs, legal fees, uh, accounting fees, you know, transport costs, really anything that is an expense that you didn't, you don't already have money to, to, you know, reimburse. And that is attributable to coronavirus. And, and at least for kind of the healthcare kind of portion of the healthcare related expense, HHS does appear to be taking kind of a broad perspective on that. Um, they aren't really taking a broad perspective, I would say, on the revenue side in that they're limiting revenue to patient care revenue, which uh, I'll, just, I'll just point out here, that's, that's very new, uh, you know, under prior guidance from HHS, um, you know, we thought there may have been support that you could include, include lost fundraising revenue, lost donation revenue, lost thrift store revenue, that you could include those in terms of calculating how much money you lost due to the pandemic or revenue that you lost during the pandemic. Under the current guidance, it, it appears that HHS now is, appears to be saying, no, no, we really want you to look only at how we're narrowly defining patient care revenue. So we, we don't think that, that at least as currently written, now again, Meg, you're right, this is probably not the last we're gonna hear about this. We know that other national um, you know, provider organizations are um, kind of doing some advocacy work on this, but under the current guidance, um, uh, yeah, it does not appear that that these types of you know fundraising for store revenue would be uh, able to be included in your lost revenue calculation. Which, as you said, is a, a significant movement away from the guidance that was out there uh, prior to this. Now, it's not as though it spelled it out like, yes, you can include fundraising, but it was through the broad definition of what is lost revenue. Because if you're a nonprofit, um, you know, hospice, you're relying on donations in your thrift store um, and these fundraising events to meet your bottom line. And so um, it is real money that goes to the operation of our business and our provision of, of um, you know, funding direct patient care. So, so it, it's very significant. And I think uh, it has sent off a lot of sparks as it relates to this sort of seems like a bait and switch here. I built, you know, some people might've closed their, their books for their fiscal year already. And now it's like, well, what does this mean? And, and I was operating under some very different assumptions. And this isn't just like, oh, can we include broadband versus not? I mean, this is a fundamental shift in the definition itself, not sort of what's within the laundry list of this definition. And so, so anyway, I think, uh, as you said, uh, you know, provider associations, I think, are evaluating what they need to do in terms of um, addressing this with, with um, you know, the agencies. And I think that there was some discussion about, um, because what DHHS had said it is very different than this. And it might've been 
like the Office of Management and Budget or something that we were hearing was taking a different, you know, position. And so maybe it's not so much DHHS uh, saying this, but but perhaps another organization that's saying, hey, I, I don't think this is the, the right approach, but but I expect this is going to be tested, whether that's, you know, through advocacy or other means, because this is significant uh, for for folks, and I, I think folks across the the spectrum. So, hospital, health systems, hospices, long term care. I mean, uh, it is really an across the board kind of kind of issue. And I think as people look at this and knowing that this pandemic is not anywhere near over at this point, is like also very concerned about returning money that it's like, I, you know, I mean, things can change on a dime as we all live in Wisconsin and have just recently had some, I think, I don't like seeing Wisconsin on the front cover of the New York Times uh, in terms of yeah. having such a big increase in our, our COVID uh, positive testing and, and whatnot. So, so anyway, uh, that's really helpful. Uh, I think not not welcomed news, but I think news that people at least need to be aware of. So um, when does this, so why don't you recap for folks, when does this start mattering in terms of, we, we just talked about there could be advocacy, but how do we know if something's going to change and whether or not that's going to impact you know, our reporting. So, so when's the first, when do we have to start reporting? Uh, you have to start reporting on February 15th of next year, 2021. So the first, the first of these compliance reports that we're talking about is due on that date. So 45 days after the end of, of, of uh, 2020. And for that first report, you're going to be reporting on, you know, what we're just talking about here, your use of the provider relief fund payment for 2020. Then if you still have leftover payment amounts after 2020, uh, we now know we have clarification that you have until June 30th of next year, 2021, to then spend down the rest of your payment. And if you do that, if you still had payment that you spent down in 2021, then your second compliance report is due on uh, July 31st, 2021. Uh, we, we now know also that the the portal that you would use to submit your report, that's gonna be opened uh, the first of the year, 2021. Um, actually, as early as as, as last week, uh, HHS was saying that it was gonna be available October 1st. Now we know we do we do still have, again, three more months. Um, so, you know, this, this is kind of an important deal, obviously, but kind of just for context, there is some time, I mean, we know that you'll want to, you know, start making your decisions now, uh, kind of based on this. But just for purposes of the report itself, you do have some time to, um, you know, to, to worry about submitting that. So, uh, and and I think you said something that's important in the sense that, so even with this lost revenue calculation, and maybe now you can't include as much in that sort of bucket of what's considered lost revenue. If you haven't spent all of your money, you don't have to return it right now, 
you could, right. I mean, or after you report or whatever, it, it does say that you could spend it into 2021. Obviously, then you're going to have to submit another compliance report. But so, so to the extent this definition of revenue changes doesn't um, get altered in a way that is, you know, for example, takes into account some of the things that matter to hospices, like fundraising, uh, uh, lost revenue, and other things that, and you you have still money left over, and you're looking that this pandemic isn't over, you will still have some time to use the rest of those funds, assuming you can with all the qualifiers that, you know, obviously some of those healthcare-related expenses especially if they're telehealth related, are expenses that are more one time, like we bought whatever additional laptops we need or iPads or whatever. So, um, right. So anything else before we close up here, Andrew, that are important takeaways? We'll be talking about this, I'm sure, again. But Yeah, uh, just a couple quick Quick things um, also on the, the this, you know, how do you calculate quote unquote lost revenue? Um, a couple of new, new uh, things that, that we now know from the, from the guidance. So um, previously we, we were kind of talking about benchmarks. So if, in terms of calculating your lost revenue, um, you know, what do you compare 2020 revenue to, to determine how much you quote unquote lost? Under HHS's prior guidance, HHS was saying you can use any reasonable method for doing that. And they gave out a couple examples of compare your 2020 revenue to 2019 revenue or compare it to what you budgeted for 2020. So that was the way things stood prior to the release of this new guidance. Now, under the new guidance, HHS isn't saying that you have that there's a reasonable method and you have to use 2019 patient care revenue as the benchmark even if you're calculating 2021 revenue for the purposes of a report next year. The only benchmark you use is 2019 patient care revenue. Again, that's that's a new concept that really no one had sort of anticipated HHS was going to come out um, and reverse itself, uh, but they did that in this new in this new guidance. And then the final point I wanted to bring up um, is this cap um, on reportable lost revenue. So in terms of kind of applying your patient your your provider relief fund payment to your lost revenue calculation um, you can only apply it up to the amount of your 2019 net gain from healthcare related sources so if you let's say you had in 2019 you know five thousand dollars net gain like that's how much you had after you you know took into account all of your expenses that $5,000, that's your cap for purposes of saying that, you know, reporting your lost revenue for 2020. If you if you made less in 2019 than you brought in, so you have a negative, you know, I guess you have a loss in 2019, then HHS is saying, okay, well, we're going to still let you to break even in 2020. So even if you had negative $5,000 in 2019, you still can claim as much lost revenue in 2020 that would allow you to say, hey, I, you know, I'm breaking even in, in, in 2020, which is consistent, we think, with with some prior kind of standards we were exploring, such as kind of, you know, 
what would your individual decisions collectively look um, or you know give the appearance that you were better off because of COVID? Um, we we, we kind of see HHS reinforcing that idea of you know not being better off because of COVID through this idea of a cap on your lost revenue. Mm -hmm. So the the but for COVID, would you have had this expense sort of generally holds true, and then this yes. better off. Uh, you don't want to be better off due to COVID. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time going round and round on what takeaways there were. Now, the, it, the devil's in the, the details here about, well, what that does that really mean? And as you said, uh, there's much less flexibility on some of these things than than it appeared that there was, or I shouldn't just say appear, expressly stated in prior guidance documents about what could be included. And so this isn't just, well, it was gray and now there's an interpretation. I think what is ruffling feathers is there were specific statements that were made uh, that then this is directly contradicts and people relied on those prior representations and close their books if they, you know, depending on their fiscal year and, you know, book certain things. And again, I'm just throwing out some accounting words. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know what they actually mean. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think as we talk to our accounting friends and you and I had a conversation with Crow uh, uh, late last week about sort of what does all of this mean from an accounting perspective? And, and I think, you know, everyone's sort of trying to figure, figure this out, um, because we still have the, that single audit requirement, which we're not getting into today because that really didn't change. But, but anyway, uh, so a lot, a lot to think about, um, and I'm sure this will not be the last time you and I talk about this. And, but surprisingly, a lot of people haven't called us about this. But I, I really think this is an area folks need to be mindful of. Uh, <laughs> you know, the world is sort of fast changing. I think people get on overload, but but this could be fairly significant uh, for for um, a lot of our hospices out there. And so so hopefully some advocacy will turn the tide here and result in some some changes that that uh, put things back maybe more where there that we were before and what pe people were actually planning for. So so anyway, any closing thoughts on that, Andrew, before we wrap up here? No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I, I think exactly what you said, um, and, and I think we're going to be, you know, eager to see and, you know, and, and maybe work with some of these organizations that are going to try to, you know, push back from an advocacy advocacy perspective, because obviously the, this is a big deal. Um, you know, you, we want to make sure that we're reporting things correctly and, you know, there are penalties, you know, and, and enforcement that we expect down the road. So obviously an important area and we're going to be, yeah talking about it more um updating updating you to the extent there are updates and yeah um we'll, we'll just we'll just kind of take it from there i guess yeah so i think folks need to be cautious and vigilant in terms of staying abreast of what's going on because this i expect is going to be 
potentially fast moving area that, as you pointed out, the time between you have to make your call and close your books and submit this report is not that long in terms of I think the accounting world, like whatever, 45 days is not very long for people to, to deal with this. So, so anyway, and, and Tom, I, I really appreciate you joining our first mashup. You did awesome. Um, and so I wasn't really able to mesh them together. It was, it was a mashup in terms of part one and part two, but, um, but I think nonetheless, really important information for our hospice listeners to, to hear. And, uh, we may well do, uh, another mashup between the two of you. And I feel like there should be some type of epic battle between the two of you, like which one is driving people more crazy or something. But, um, so, but I, I think all I can say is change is constant, right? And and if it very much holds true in in the legal landscape with COVID, uh, because the these things are are not resting in place, even if they do come out in rules as as Tom's area has, they still are subject to change. So I really appreciate you you all taking the time to share your your insights. I think this will be really helpful for our listeners and and look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, happy happy to be here. Thanks.